1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The CEO of Macy's, Jeff Gannett, joins us momentarily to talk their massive quarter, the comeback of the consumer, and where they're investing. Plus, why isn't the stock reacting better, given how massive this beat was? And Fidelity wants to give teenagers access to no-fee brokerage accounts. We're going to speak with a company about this new push, and if they have more to gain than lose from catering to this new population of traders. Plus, bonds may be coming to Amazon. Hedge funds are loaded down with SPACs. And please, check your ticker symbols. That's all ahead this hour. I should have seen—you almost could have been like a Domino's pizza. but They were DPZ.
2: I could could have been. If it was D-O-M, or I don't know what else it could have been. But, you know, Kelly— To check those tickers, I'm checking tickers right now because it's all I can do in a day that's very much about consolidation. Not much happening in the markets overall from a macro perspective, but a lot of cross-currents underneath the markets overall. So we'll start with a top-level look from the funnel down. Take a look at the Dow Industrials, up about 56 points, just about two-tenths of 1% to the upside there. The S&P, 4161, just about flat on the day. And the Nasdaq Composite, up about one-half of 1%. But here's how tight the trading range has been so far today. At the highs, the S&P 500 was up just six points and at the lows down a very modest 11 points. That's been the range so far today. So keep that in mind as we talk about this kind of consolidation that the markets are going through right now. Two key parts of the market to keep an eye on that have been losing a little bit of momentum as the afternoon has kind of gotten started here. First of all, take a look at the, the retail trade. Walmart, Home Depot, Macy's all come out with great numbers, by the way. Beating earnings expectations, revenue expectations, comparable store sales expectations. Everything's going well. Groceries online for them at Walmart. Home Depot is doing well on big ticket items. Macy's, same store sales just surged. But you can see a little bit of that luster has come off. We were much higher in the pre-market and early trading so far today. And then one other part of the market to watch, the reopening trade. Think about airlines. Think about hotels. Think about cruise lines and think about restaurants out This part of the market is still holding on to some gains today. So, again, United Airlines, Royal Caribbean, Marriott and Darden, indicative of that reopening trade. We're still seeing a bit of an outsized bid compared to the relative part of the market here for the rest of these types of stocks. Kelly, certainly watch those retail names and the reopening trade. I'll send things back over to you.
1: And we're going to pick it up right there. Dom, thank you very much. The rotation from e-commerce to reopening place has been well underway for months now, but is it a little premature to sell those uh, uh, pandemic names entirely? If Walmart is any guide, its e-commerce business has continued to thrive, even as consumers return to physical stores. My next guest says there's a good way to play this new bridge between physical and digital. Joining me now is Nancy Tangler. She is Laffer Tangler Investments' chief investment officer. Nancy, it is great to see you. Kelly, it is fabulous to see you in the studio. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's good. It is good to be here after a couple of false starts. Um, So listen, uh, let's talk about your, I think Amazon is is one of your favorite names right now. This whole theme is one of your favorites. So explain a little bit uh, where you see the opportunity here.
3: Well, so, you know, you've heard this ad nauseum, but the consumer is in fabulous shape. It's not just the transfer payments, uh, but it's also the balance sheet. And that has been happening over the last 10, 15 years where debt's been paid down by the consumer. And asset prices obviously are up, housing as well. So we think the spending uh, boom continues. And we may see a, a slight shift from goods to services, but goods are not going away. And so Amazon's a stock that... Sort of straddles uh, e-commerce and some physical shopping. Uh, you saw today from Walmart what uh, being in both spaces can do up against really difficult comps. Uh, beat the numbers, raise guidance. E-commerce uh, continues to thrive there as well. So we, we actually like both these names, but we've been adding to Amazon. It's done nothing for almost a year uh, since late summer, anyway. And so this is a stock on a valuation basis that is compelling. They've borrowed a lot of money at very low rates, and they've raised uh, expectations for free cash flow. Quick question before we move away from Amazon. What
1: would you think as a shareholder about their possible investment in MGM, especially the price that they're rumored to be paying, which is pretty steep?
3: Well, yes, um, it is steep, but this is a company with a ton of cash. And uh, I think they'd rather buy MGM than than pay a dividend, though, as a shareholder, I'd rather they They pay a dividend. (laughs) Um, So they, they needed to make a big acquisition. It would lower the cost of content for them. And uh, it's, I, I find it super intriguing, especially in light of the at and discovery deal. So I think they're on the right track. This is what Jeff Bezos, I believe, freed himself up to do, be strategic and thoughtful. Uh, and we know that he likes this space. And we know that streaming is going to continue to be a compelling part of most people's uh, entertainment budget.
1: It's interesting you say you'd rather have them pay a dividend. Why is that? Because presumably they think they can ret- invest those cash flows internally at much higher rates than whatever they might be able to pay out. And it's not tax efficient, especially these days right?
3: Exactly right. I think that one of my big worries about the market is the potential policy mistakes we may see out of D.C. And, and that, that is not just dividend or income taxes going up, which will raise the tax on dividends, but capital gains taxes going up to almost usurious levels, if you ask me. Right. So that being the case, why would you want Amazon to pay a dividend? Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you, Kelly. Yeah. Well, as an investor, I mean, many investors live off the income in their portfolios. So if you get a dividend and dividend growth, think of Apple. I mean, there was a time in 2013-14 when they were yielding above the 10-year, and the 10-year was yielding in the almost 3% level uh, range. So. Um, as for retail investors, dividends, uh, if, if there's enough cash flow, are better and more sustainable than share buybacks, though I'm not opposed to share buybacks. Mm-hmm. But I, I think just for individuals who are investing in the stock, it's a way to get some of your return up front. Right. It would be. So it's kind
1: of a catalyst for gains if they were to go in that direction. Maybe we can see that coming out of the AT&T trade again today. The idea that that might be shrunken right. a little bit. Um, There's so many different things we could touch. on. I know, for example, you mentioned stock buybacks and you do think that's an important source under the whole stock market. But uh, since we've been talking Amazon, your thoughts on Apple are a little bit different here. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not. This is not a name you'd be picking up on what some would say is another
3: opportunity where it hasn't done much lately. It, you're right. It has not. Um, but we were buying the stock at at much lower uh, P.E. levels, much lower relative price to sales ratio levels. And, and we think a lot of the good news at, at the current P.E. is priced in. So we have been net sellers for the last 18 months. We sold about 60 percent of our holdings. We still own. A significant about amount in our portfolios it's about a three percent weighting uh, across the board but it was five six and would have gone to ten if we hadn't trimmed it so um, w- we think m- much of that story has played out we get the whole super cycle in services but that was important when the stock was trading you know at a nine multiple hmm. those those things were not priced in and so we are are, are shifting a little bit to some new software names, which I can't talk about because we just purchased them this morning. Well, we'll give it a few days, maybe, maybe, and then we'll ask. Nancy,
1: let me just circle back to what we started with at the beginning here before I let you go. So this idea of kind of these companies that can bridge both the physical and the digital shopping experience for the post-pandemic consumer, are there any other
3: plays in that space other than Amazon that you'd recommend here? Definitely. Yes, Kelly. Um, We we like Starbucks and uh, Chipotle on the restaurant side. McDonald's has begun to show life. We own all three of those. uh, And they're pretty major holdings. We're pretty significantly overweight consumer discretionary. I actually think Home Depot has done a very good job. Another name that we own. Uh, It didn't get much of a response today, but stocks up materially and it's still attractive. And the housing uh, trade is not over. They've done a good job with digital, as have Starbucks, as I mentioned, Chipotle and um, and McDonald's. So we we like all of those uh, names in the consumer discretionary space. Yeah. And and to think that Home Depot might not be done yet after some
1: of the gains that it's made. Uh, Always such great thoughts, Nancy. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Nancy Tangler with Laffer Tangler Investments joining me today. Speaking of Walmart, we had a slew of retail earnings over the past 24 hours with Walmart, Home Depot, like you just heard, and Macy's all crushing estimates. Now, the shares for the most part are kind of moving sideways. Walmart's positive by about two and a half percent. Macy's, though, down half a percent, suggesting a lot of the good news we've just heard has already been priced in, but Macy's still reported a huge jump in sales, giving us some insight into what consumers are buying right now as well. And Courtney Reagan is here with more on that and with a very special guest. Courtney?
4: Hi, Kelly. So Macy's is still selling a lot of home goods and sleepwear like it sold during the pandemic, but there's a resurgence and categories that are kind of showcasing the reopening. One of the most improved categories, luggage apparel also improved eight percentage points from last quarter. Dresses like special occasion for prom, mother, the bride and casual dresses improved along with dressy sandals to go with those dresses. Of course, for men, tailored clothing strengthened. The department store sold more at price and had fewer markdowns, which ultimately did help margins, though delivery expenses did increase. So I am going to bring in Macy's chairman and CEO Jeff Kinnett to talk to us a little bit more on these trends and everything else that's going on with Macy's. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us here today. Kelly sort of started us off by talking about Macy's shares. You blew it out of the water when it compared to analyst estimates for profit and for sales Uh, increased your forecast. But you have to be careful in looking at the comparisons because of what happened during first quarter last year with the store closures. And you gave us a lot of comparisons to the first quarter of 2019. So when you look at that, comp sales are still down 10%. You think that's what's really holding down the stock? And what can you do to give us a positive comp number?
5: So hi, Courtney. Good to see you. And uh, what I'd say to you is that our brand's got momentum. And so what I would look at is what happened you know, in the fourth quarter of 2020 and what happened in the first quarter of 2021 versus 19. And so while we were down to the first quarter of 2019, definite improvement from what our momentum was in in, uh, the fourth quarter. And it's really in the categories you talked about, Courtney. It's that you know, we definitely saw a big change with the vaccinations in those categories where customers are starting to reemerge, where they're going back, they're going to church, they're going to out to dinner, uh, they're going to the prom, and places where they're re-emerging. we've got the categories that are going to be right for them. So what we saw in the momentum was that it got steadily better as we went through the quarter. We've taken that momentum into the second quarter. Um, people you know, people love their mothers. It was a very good, strong Mother's Day for us. We expect it to be a strong Father's Day, a strong back to school. And we think it's going to be a gangbusters holiday with people getting back together with family members they may not have been with for the past 16 months. So we think it's going to be a great gift-giving time frame for the balance of this year.
4: And so you acknowledged, of course, that the stimulus checks definitely helped. Uh, you know, you sell at certain times of the year, but it sounds like you're really positive going forward through the balance of the year for these different activities, even through the holiday season. What makes you really believe that the consumer's pent-up demand will be longer lived than just a quarter or two?
5: Yeah, I think when you look at the consumer right now, they're very healthy. When you look at their debt levels, when you look at their open to spend, and when you look at what we've just gone through as a nation, you know, and just being able to reemerge and getting back to kind of some level of normal activity, uh, that suits up with our categories very well. When you think about apparel, accessories, and home store, um, I just think it's going to be great buying for for the future. And when you look at the Macy's and the Bloomingdale's brand, you know, what we don't think is going to come back is we don't think that international tourism is coming back in 2021. We think that's going to be good news that comes to us in 22 and beyond. So um, there's lots of reasons for us to kind of why we raised guidance today was because of what we saw in the consumer. Stimulus is kind of worn off. But this pandemic and, and the vaccinations, those buying patterns are just emerging. So you've got this kind of back to normal activity. This whole back to work opportunity really hasn't started yet. So we know that that's going to be buying occasions for us in the in the in the really the second and the third quarters of this year.
1: A lot of catalysts still out there. As you mentioned, Jeff, it's Kelly here. And thanks again for joining us. My question is about inflation and where Macy's sits in kind of the price point, right? I often think about Macy's as it's not quite as cheap as maybe a Target and a Walmart, which have really good fashion these days, but it's obviously not as expensive as some of the higher end stores. So does an inflationary environment allow you to kind of increase profit margins a little bit, or do you feel like those might be under pressure because your costs are up, but you can't raise prices?
5: You know i think it's more of the former i would tell you that where the macy's and bloomingdale's brand do well is that we have the gamut of from kind of off price to luxury and what i look at right now is that our consumers are transacting our regular price sell-throughs are up and our average unit retail is up about nine percent so customers are buying value you know we can get the make of our goods we can put more details into them uh, we can put more trims in and uh, and as a result of that customers are willing to pay higher higher retails for those so we've seen that across all of our categories there's not a category that I have in, in store right now that doesn't have higher average unit retails. And part of that is our, we're in a great position, we've got great tasty fashion that customers are responding to, and we're really dealing with all of our old age product much faster than ever before.
4: Jeff, it's Courtney again. You talked about the different uh, off-mall formats that are smaller that you're working on through the pilot stages, like the, the smaller Bloomies concept, as well as the market by Macy's. Is that the future of Macy's? Will all Macy's brands end up being this smaller format?
5: No, what I think is that, you know, we're a digitally led omnichannel retailer. So you can see that through the pandemic, we made a hard pivot to as part of the business that we were already very strong and sizable in, which was our digital business. So we put it out there that we believe that Macy's and Bloomingdale's can get to $10 billion in our digital business by 2023. But we know that that's fortified with omnichannel customers. And this this notion that customers are healthiest when they're shopping between brick and mortar and digital. And a lot of our customers don't find malls convenient. And there are customers that would love the Macy's and Bloomingdale brand, but they happen to be in those areas where it's not convenient to go to a mall store. So we're looking at those locations, you know, those DMAs where we're playing in three different uh, cities right now as a test. And we're planting small door formats, both in full price as well as off price. And they're fully Omni capable. So you can do returns, purchases, pickups of anything in the Macy's and the Bloomingdale's ecosystem through those new portals. And we're going to see what happens. Certainly, the four-wall profitability of those units is going to be important. But more importantly is the trade area demand and the customer lifetime value of the customers that are in those trade areas. So that's what we're experimenting with right now. Uh, we've got a lot more coming between Bloomingdale's and Macy's through the balance of 2021. And we'll have something to talk about with everybody in the beginning of 2022.
4: Ah, that, that's what we call a deep tease, Jeff. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to take a look at uh, some of the tasty fashion. It's been a while since I've shopped for any fashion goods myself. Thanks for joining us, Jeff Gannett, CEO okay. and chairman of Macy's.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Court, you've been living at Carter's. I, uh, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) you know it. (laughs) Uh, Courtney, our thanks and our thanks as well to Jeff Gannett for joining us for that interview. Another major retailer is set to report earnings. Target CEO Brian Cornell will be on Squawk Box tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time for an exclusive interview after those results. Coming up here, it's been a wild 24 hours for Discovery shares. The stock shooting up 17 percent on the Warner Media merger news, but reversed sharply into the close yesterday. Why the change of heart? We'll have more on that ahead. Plus, now Amazon may be looking at MGM Studios, owner of the James Bond movies, among other things. We have the latest on that and what a potential merger would mean for the streaming wars. We're back in a moment.
6: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
7: Summer, the best time of year, usually
1: doesn't come with a great deal Welcome back to the exchange. Doubts about the Warner Media Discovery deal seem to be creeping in, and the ink, ink, ink isn't even dry yet, she said. Uh, shares of ATT and Discovery initially rallied on the news yesterday before ending the day lower. Discovery closed down 5%. AT&T finished the day down 3%, and those declines we see today as well. So what are investors primarily concerned about? Joining me now is a big Discovery shareholder, Bill Smead. He is chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management. He owns a million and a half shares of Discovery in the Smead Value Fund, which is up 27% this year. It's a Bill Smead world, and we are all living in it as millennials buy houses, Bill, and build them and uh, watch Discovery. So let me ask you this. Why not take uh, this deal as a great opportunity to lock in your gains and sell?
9: Well, uh, we we had Bill Wong there to lock in our gains. Hmm. Uh, We we sold a lot during the first quarter at average prices, way, way above where we are now. And then when it got crushed, we started buying it back because what happens with these short squeeze stocks is they get kind of a scarlet letter on on their sweater and no one wants to touch them. But the truth of it is the major tech players that want to be major streaming players have one big problem, and that is that content is scarce. You know, after you've watched The Office and Friends, what are you going to (laughs) do? So here along comes David Zaslav, one of the true geniuses of human artistic ingenuity, and goes right into the face of the artificial intelligence guys and says, hey, I'll just dominate content, and then you can come and call me later.
1: Right, because your point is actually, and, and again, your reference earlier was to the Archegos blow-up, which a lot of people had said was kind of holding down Discovery Shares. So you were buying on that weakness. But but turning back to the issue of content, your thesis now is that this combined company becomes more, a more attractive target to one of the big tech players ultimately, right?
9: Right. It, 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 you, you're You're putting 90-day fiancé... And HGTV and all the wonderful things that came from merging scripts and Discovery with Tyrion, who he, he drinks and he knows things. I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, it, it means my 35-year-old son and I are on the same page.
1: <laughs> um, and I, I have to say that the Discovery-Scripps deal, which I believe was also initially kind of a, a worry point for investors has kind of borne out this idea that you need scale, that you need uh, assets that are kind of symbiotic with each other. This would kind of take that to another level, especially with the European exposure. Uh, some of the concerns people outline include the debt load that we have here, the simple fact of going up against Netflix. I mean, at some point, this is just going to become a, an issue of spending. If you need content, you, you spend to get it. So do I, any of those concern you in the near term?
9: Well, it, think about this, that the largest owner of Discovery – was Newhouse, advanced new house and john malone and who are the largest owners now this deal wouldn't go through if these two extremely successful long-term investors didn't want it to go through mm-hmm. therefore they're endorsing it and john malone is the cowboy cable cowboy billionaire and he doesn't like to pay taxes and he doesn't mind leverage so if he doesn't mind it and Newhouse doesn't mind it We don't mind it.
1: What would you say to investors who are looking around? So it was interesting to see the whole content complex kind of sell off on this yesterday, including our parent company, Comcast, including Charter. Um, What would you say to investors who are trying to figure out which horse they want to bet on now as this consolidation is clearly underway?
9: Well, we always like to bet on the horse where we're getting the most future success for the least amount of money. And right now that's Disca. We also are owners of Comcast, and it's been a very successful investment over a long period of time and i would guess that once the confusion blows over that that uh, people will stop worrying about them like they did yesterday and, and and we're actually more concerned about our disney shares which have kind of had this inflated streaming success price earnings ratio and yes their earnings will be a lot better in a couple of years once the parks and everything comes back on stream but we're we're more worried that that's been priced into it then we are worried about Discovery shares.
1: That's fascinating. Okay, so final question, because I think part of the original thesis for owning Discovery was the exposure to millennial household formation that you've been building the case for for years, and it exploded during the pandemic, obviously. Um, Is the fundamental case for Discovery changed because winning and streaming is kind of different than just simply adding on cable boxes to new households? You know, you still now have to get people to sign up. It's easier than ever. Churn could be quite high as they move from one you know, program to the next. Um, I'm just curious if that's as attractive to you in the new economics of streaming as it was in the old economics of the cable model.
9: I think they're finding that they can actually make a little bit more money per customer in streaming. They have uh, Europe, and, and by the way, taking the Warner assets to Europe and, and the sports to Europe, uh, you know, many of the most successful NBA basketball players came from europe Mm -hmm. so there's just it's a treasure trove of content and if you've got great content and you've got great uh artistic ingenuity uh you're going to find a home whereas the artificial intelligence tells you what people have been watching and then to throw spaghetti up at the wall which is what they do at netflix and amazon in hopes to find one out of every 10 things that work I just don't think it's as profitable. And in the long run, I don't think it'll be as successful.
1: You know, I still get annoyed every time I have to type into YouTube the video that I want to watch, which is the same one I've been watching for 37 days in a row. I'm like trying <laughs> to use the remote to get to the L and then I hit the wrong thing yeah. and then I have to clear the whole field. And anyway, I'm sure they'll solve that problem. Bill, thanks so much for your time today and for joining us. Thank you. Bill Smead is the CIO of Smead Capital Management. Coming up, hedge funds loaded up on SPACs in the first quarter. We're going to take a closer look at who bought what and why. Plus, the crypto boom helping this stock to a 43% gain so far this year. But the company has nothing to do with crypto. The story behind the surge
7: is ahead. Welcome
1: to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work.
7: Impending deadline. Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Writers click, 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 click. block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed
9: for work.
1: the exchange. Here's a quick check on markets for you. The Dow is down 42 points. The, Nas- or the S&P is about flat and the Nasdaq is finally positive. Remember, it's still coming off a four-week losing streak today. It's up 77 points or half a percent. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC news update. Hi,
6: Tyler. Hey, Kelly. Uh, and here's what's happening at this hour. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy says he will oppose the formation of an independent bipartisan committee, to study the deadly Capitol Hill insurrection on January 6. McCarthy wants the proposed panel to also examine groups involved in Black Lives Matter protests. Three top House lawmakers are calling for a federal inquiry into AbbVie and the pricing of its anti-inflammatory drug, Humira. They want the FTC to investigate whether AbbVie illegally slowed the development of cheaper drugs by competitors. And vaccination rates are lower in rural counties than they are in urban areas. CDC researchers looked at data through mid-April and found a seven percentage point difference in the number of people who have gotten at least one shot. Experts say the gap is concerning because COVID cases and deaths are higher in rural counties. And from the southeast through Texas, about 30 million people are under flood warnings. Near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, one person is reported dead and another is missing. Get the latest storm track and updates on the damage tonight on the news with Shepard Smith and Kelly. Back to you.
1: I'll see you in a few minutes, Tyler. Thanks. Coming up, watch out Robin Hood. Fidelity is now going after the teen trading market, offering them a no-fee investing accounts. The details and the safeguards in place next. And don't forget, you can watch us live anytime on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back. Fidelity taking what it hopes will be a big step towards improving financial literacy by offering youth accounts. These accounts allow teens age 13 to 17 to buy and sell stocks, mutual funds and ETFs. They'll also issue debit cards. Now, the teen's parent must be a Fidelity account holder. Less than half of U.S. states require high school graduates to have any kind of personal finance coursework. So how will Fidelity's new accounts help resolve this problem or will it? Ameliorated. Exacerbated is the word I'm looking for. David Denton-Foss is one of the brains behind the new teen accounts. He is Fidelity's chief marketing officer and head of customer acquisition and loyalty. David, it's great to have you. First of all, what makes this app different from Robinhood?
0: Yeah, Kelly, thanks for having me. This is pretty different than Robinhood. We've been working on this um, you know, long before the recent uptick in the number of customers interest in the market. This is really about lifetime relationships with our customers. And in this case, it's customers of Fidelity that have teenagers in their household that they wanna start to actually teach responsible behavior to as early as possible.
1: So, uh, for example, if they wanna load up on, you know, Lordstown Motor or something, does a parent get a chance to deny that trade?
0: Yeah, so the point of this is that the parent sets it up, the teen actually does own the account, and that is unique. It's not just a custodial account, the teen can actually own the account. But we did a pilot, we had about a 1,000 people in it, and the good news is that it led to exactly what we are hoping for, conversations between parents and their children. Conversations about responsible behavior, and in fact, it did lead to responsible behavior. Nine out of 10 people were having that conversation. People weren't trading very often. Not everyone was even trading. Some people are using this as a spending account. The parent can actually monitor the spending that's done on the debit card that comes with this account. There's no fees and there's no minimum, so it's really for everybody.
1: So it's really kind of a hybrid between a checking account and a trading account, um, which is... Kind of cool. And I could see that being useful for a lot of people, actually. But regulatorily, is, is that does that put it in a gray area? How does that work?
0: Not really. It's a cash management account. And yes, you can also do brokerage with it. And out of the cash management, you get a debit card, the debit card. You can use in any ATM and there's no fee. And there's no minimum. So really, yes, you can use it instead of a traditional checking account. And if you want to use it to access the market, you can do it for that as well.
1: So are there any parental controls, so to speak, over this account? Or is it simply the fact that the parent has to give their consent so that they're aware that the account exists?
0: Yeah. So the parent gives their consent. The parent can then monitor everything that goes on. And again, in the pilot, that's what we were looking for. And that's exactly what was happening. Parents were overseeing what was going on in the account. They're having real conversations with their teenagers about whether or not the behavior is responsible. And ultimately, if something were to go off the rails, the parents can still decide whether or not this account is appropriate for their teenager. We didn't see that in the pilot, but it is a possibility.
1: And so we've heard instances with Robinhood where people misunderstand the app, especially some of the options, trades, uh, in some cases with kind of deadly uh, and sad effects. So I I imagine what you guys are doing here is allowing people to trade stocks, but not necessarily to do some of the more sophisticated slicing and dicing. Um, My question is, what happens if all of a sudden, you know, there's more capital in the account than parents realize or the losses accumulate or something to that effect?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Kelly, that's exactly right. As I said, we pick this up very differently. There's no options and there's no margin. Okay, so that's very, very important. There's also a maximum how much can be put in the account, which is thirty thousand dollars per year. And that's basically because that's the uh the guidelines for giving for um a married couple so there's a lot of and by the way a lot of the accounts are much smaller than that um and in fact about 44 percent of the money going into the accounts is from the teenagers themselves so typically this is more it might be babysitting money or lawn mowing money it's you know much smaller stakes and again there's. There's guardrails in there that you're really just doing normal market orders.
1: So last question, since you've already had this pilot program for a year or so, generally speaking, what kind of stocks and for how long uh, were people buying and holding? I mean, what what kind of patterns and trends have you picked up on in this period of time?
0: Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's why we wanted to pilot this. And and as I said, not everyone's even trading at all, which is fine. And they can use this to uh, to save and to spend. Um, The 30 percent or so that are trading, the good news is that we saw them trading infrequently. Once or twice a month was the average. And they're trading some of the bigger names. They're trading S&P 500 indexes. They're trading Apple and Tesla and things that, in many cases, the teenagers, they know the brands. In some cases, they use the brands.
1: It's fascinating. Uh, David, it's great detail. Uh, Thanks for joining us to explain it today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Kelly. David Dinton Foss from Fidelity. Amazon's latest entertainment grab, hedge funds snapping up the SPACs, and Goldman says take a dip and pool. All that and more is coming up in today's Rapid Fire, which is right after this short break. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple of stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Leslie Picker, fast money trader Steve Grasso, the James Bond, uh, without the mask, Steve, I haven't seen your face in so long. Did you shave for this?
8: This is great. I did did shave for you, (laughs) Kelly. I wanted to to look respectable, but nice to be here without a mask. Because
1: you never know what's going on under the masks for all this time. It's it's true.
8: I, I had to make sure I didn't e- eat anything sloppy for lunch. I, I, I had a floss. I did the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. It is great to
1: have you here. Uh, Julia Borson joins us to round things out as well. And we're going to begin with her on this first topic. Another big streaming deal on the horizon. On the heels of the Time Warner Discovery merger, now Amazon is reportedly in talks to acquire MGM. This is the studio behind James Bond. Also, TV shows like The Voice and their content library has more than 4,000 movies. Julia, the question is, well, not so much a question, but observation. Amazon could really be paying up for this asset. I mean, the prices I've seen floating around somewhere between eight and nine billion dollars. It's like 30 times trailing EBIT or something like that.
10: Yes. Look, my sources tell me that these talks are definitely happening, but it is still unclear if this deal will definitely happen and how much Amazon would pay for these MGM assets. Now, the the, the appeal of MGM right now is that the number of independent studios left is dwindling, and and MGM does have these big name franchises. It only actually controls. of the James Bond franchise, but it does have this library with 4,000 films. And there is a land grab happening right now with all of the different streamers wanting to secure as much content as possible for their services as these mergers happen and alliances are being made, such as what we saw recently between Sony and Netflix. This is a banker's paradise,
1: Leslie, all of these deals that are underway in this sector.
11: (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. And, and what's interesting, I think, about this now is that you look back to Amazon's history, build versus buy. Historically, they've built up their movie studio from scratch and their TV studio from scratch. Uh, and I just wanted to uh, pull a quote from Digital Center, which says, uh, how do you become a millionaire in Hollywood? Well, the answer is you start out as a billionaire. So right. obviously, they've been very successful <laughs> with that. Now, I think Julia brings up a good point on why you would want to buy now when you already have such momentum behind you. And the answer is that huge catalog of content, the fact that uh, it's just helpful as one of these streaming providers to have it all there for the consumers, a lot easier to just buy it. And Steve, competitive. we
1: often see this happen in different industries where as soon as a big acquisition happens, everybody else scrambles because they realize they need scale quickly. You know, they, the consolidation is happening. Most time we end up with four major players left at the end of this and everybody wants to be involved. So we also heard Nancy Tangler top of the hour who said she likes Amazon, uh, thinks it has a lot of potential. The stock is going nowhere for a year, would be an owner of it here. Do you like this deal? And do you like the stock?
8: Well, first of all, there's tremendous headwinds for a a name like Amazon, and and none of them have anything to do with Amazon. It's about growth versus value, Kelly. So for the last six months, uh, we've had volatility in the uh, large cap tech space. People are rolling into cyclicals into that value space. That's the number one headwind for Amazon has nothing to do with streaming. Having said that, You have a number of players. When you think about streaming, what do you think about? You think about Netflix, you think about Disney, and you think about Amazon, and then the rest of the pool. Mm -hmm. I bought recently Viacom, V-I-A-C, because I think they're all going to get bid up for their assets. And the sell-off that we've seen in Viacom as of late, nothing to do with the fundamentals. Right, right. And stock was hit. Stock was hit. So, yes, I agree with you. There's going to be a a handful of players, but I think the macro headwinds for large-cap tech are too much right now. But if you want to gobble up some streaming, how about it.
1: And Julie, a final word on this. When we spoke to Bill Smead, a big discovery shareholder just a few moments ago, he said he's hanging on to the stock because he thinks this roll up will now ultimately probably be acquired by one of the big tech players. So again, you see why a lot of people think, okay, major consolidation is happening. I can at least bet that a higher price is going to be paid for some of these assets today than might have been thought a few years ago, obviously.
10: Yes. I mean, look, it will be many years before the roll-up of the, the, the Warner Media Discovery combination could be bought by anyone else. There is still a regulatory process that needs to happen over the next year. But what I would say, back to Leslie's point about this idea of build versus buy, when it comes to getting a library... 4,000 films, 17,000 hours of television. You can't just build that overnight. That's exactly the kind of thing you have to buy. And I think that's exactly why Amazon is in a position where it would want to buy something like this, because some things just aren't buildable yeah. in the entertainment. I mean, industry. how old is MGM? 100 years old, right? I mean, at, at some point, we're talking about decades
1: and decades and decades worth of IP. And you can see why, OK, they're going to pay a little bit more for, you know, trailing earnings than they <laughs> Yeah, that just has to seem like who cares in the grand scheme of things. All right, they're telling me to move on. All right, let's talk about some uh, some of what's been going on in the investments world between hedge funds and SPACs. Um, SPACs, as we know, had a really difficult start to the year. They've been in the red, underperforming uh, for the most part, even after being red hot in 2020. An analysis from Reuters has found the median performance of SPACs announced this year has trailed the S&P by 15 percentage points. And, Leslie, our CNBC SPAC post-deal index is trailing the S&P by 30% year to date. So what's going on with the hedge fund buying activity here? Is Is this intentionally buying on the dips?
11: Yeah. So what's really interesting about the timing of these 13F filings is that they are as of March 31st. What also happened on March 31st is you saw two statements from the SEC throwing a bit of cold water on the whole SPAC phenomenon. And that was the beginning of the end of the frenzy, shall we say. That's when you started to see that pretty dramatic underperformance following those two statements. So it's really interesting to see all of these big names get into these SPACs, at least as of the end of the first quarter. Now, it's unclear whether they are still invested in these names, but I would note uh, that there were a couple themes that we picked up from the types of SPACs that they were invested in. I would say that the big investors were really drawn to other big investors leading SPACs. This goes to uh, Toma Bravo, which is a SPAC spun off of a, a large private equity firm, Dragoneer, another big investor, Cone Robbins, two investors slash, you know, obviously Gary Cohn is a, a banker. So you didn't see them really dabbling in a lot of the, the celebrity driven SPACs or SPACs with lesser known entities. It was these right. kind of what they perceive to be high-quality investor-led SPACs. And
1: on that point, Steve, your your own kind of way of looking at SPACs and finding the high-quality ones is by companies with what you think are good management teams. So you're also in some ways picking through the rubble
8: here, right? Sure. So I bought two of the names uh, that Bill Foley, excellent money manager, excellent history, steeped in Wall Street Paysafe, PSFE, and we saw Appaloosa uh, added to that one with a handful of other funds increasing their stake in that one. That one is definitely baby out with the bathwater. WPF hasn't yet, another Bill Foley SPAC. That one they are giving away. The company is a light. It's a, it's a cloud human resource company. Kelly, this is the main thing. You nailed it kicking off the segment by the management team. Top of that, buy companies that are actual companies. I own another one, S-T-E-M. It's an artificial intelligence battery storage play. That's in the sweet spot of everything that we talk about right now in green energy. So those three names are real companies with a real future ahead of them.
1: I was only reading what you said, but I think buying good management teams is something that even Berkshire would say that's all that they do. When you talk to Buffett and Munger, they say over and over throughout the years, it's been much more important for us to buy good management teams than to overly focus on the price. So maybe the SPAC world is playing that out again uh, here in 2021. Uh, let's talk about Goldman saying the bull market isn't over yet for pools. It just initiated coverage of Pool Corp as a buy, anticipating growth in revenues, margins, and returns. Gives it a $535 price target. It's currently at 429 It's about 22% upside. And they're bullish on the sector overall. They're talking about 12% growth with 108,000 pool installations across the U.S. this year. It's interesting to me because you would think a lot of this is already priced in. But, Julia, they're also talking about the shifting population to the hotter South and West as being part of their kind of secular growth story here.
10: I was surprised as well. I would have thought that people would have been investing in building pools during the pandemic that year, this past year that they were stuck at home. And now they'd be thinking about getting out of their house, not being hunkered down at home and instead going out and spending that same money on trips. But I do think it speaks to people leaving cities, r- moving out to the suburbs, having you know bought new houses in the past year and now thinking about this is going to be where they live rather than in a high rise.
1: Yeah. And Steve, I have friends who live in, you know, Charleston, South Carolina. And they say you literally cannot survive the summer if you don't have a pool. You can't. You can't.
8: Right. And, And the other footnote to that is even though they should have done this, to Julia's point, to your point, even though they should have done this during the pandemic, you couldn't get anyone out to your house to do anything. So they signed a lot of contracts, I'm sure. So a lot of this is a tailwind from the pandemic But when you think about all the ancillary stuff, the the pool furniture, all the other things. And then let's not forget, there's a chlorine shortage right now, Kelly. Do you have a pool? So I do do have a pool and and I have a saltwater pool, but you're still Uh using chlorine. Uh, to some extent, it's just the way it's processed. Think about all those diversified chemical names that are caught up in the sweet spot of the cyclical economy and the value play. I own O-L-N, Olin, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the three segments is in the chlorine segment. So think about those domino effects and what else you could play off of the cool surge, if you will.
1: Exactly. If Goldman says it's going to keep going, I love it. I love it. All right. Finally, an unexpected beneficiary of the crypto craze is furniture chain, Ethan Allen. Its shares have surged more than 40% this year because of an old school product. Investors are confusing its ticker symbol, ETH, with the symbol for Ether. Uh, StockTwits told The Wall Street Journal that its Ethan Allen forum is actually filled with messages about Ether, and it's seen activity, Leslie, surge by 300 percent this month. (laughs) Uh,
11: People are going to be very disappointed when they realize that they are actually buying the most hard asset of assets, which is furniture. Um, (laughs) No, but this is becoming a recurring problem. Remember when Elon Musk tweeted buy signal and that sent signal advance a stock Mm. up like 500 percent in one day? I mean, why are there not more safeguards or are they for people? Are there safeguards for people who are just mistakenly buying these ticker symbols? It seems like it's happening in a A much more frequent occurrence over the last year. Part of it has to do with just this tremendous interest from retail investors. Right, right. Uh, But how are people not realizing this and really affecting the stock? Uh, Steve, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but our ticker symbols—do we even need
1: them anymore? I love them. I absolutely love them. Do we? Are they as essential (laughs) to to modern finance as they were uh, when they first were
8: created? I, I don't think so. I think you're onto something there. I, I think it should just be the company name. But in the lead off to this spot, you, you, you showed the Zoom chart. That, that was another one that they did it with. But if if you don't want to take the bull by the horns, start accepting Bitcoin. There you go. How about it. <laughs> Julie, I'll give you the last word.
10: Look, I think it's also worth noting that Ethan Allen did grow its revenue in the first quarter. So yes, there may have been some confusion, but this is a company that sold more furniture in part because as we discussed with the pools, people were stuck at home.
1: It turns out it's just a great marketing strategy. You want more people to know about your story. All you have to do is ride the coattails of some hot trend. Spectacular or something. Uh, guys, thank you all today. Julia Borstin, Steve Grasso and Leslie Picker. After the break, Republicans are building a strategy to target President Biden's proposed tax hikes by holding their first tax camp. We'll get you The details don't go anywhere. Welcome back. House GOP lawmakers are holding their first tax camp today. The goal is building a strategy to fight President Biden's proposed tax hike hikes. Our Elon Moy is at physically literally outside in the fresh air at Capitol Hill with more. Hi
7: Elon. Well, hi, Callie. Tax camp will get started here on Capitol Hill in just about an hour. It's a closed-door session geared at new members who might not have been around for the big tax fight back in 2017. But Congressman Kevin Brady, the top Republican on the House Tax Writing Committee, told us that he wants these lawmakers prepared to defend tax reform. There's more growth to be had, and these members are going to shape that. And Republicans have been polling key swing districts like the Atlanta suburbs, and they found that 23 percent of voters in the Georgia 7 who had heard. President Biden's infrastructure plan actually associated it with roads and bridges, but an almost equal number also linked it to excessive spending. So Republican senators will be meeting today on Capitol Hill with top White House officials. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, as well as Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, will be handling those talks The GOP has held firm against new taxes to pay for this plan, but Kelly, perhaps there could be an opening around the tax gap, just getting people to pay what they already owe. Back over to you. I just like the idea of calling calling
1: any brainstorming session camp. It just makes it sound that much more fun. Elon, thanks, or Elon Moy. That does it for the exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.